There was a massive, ever-expanding empire. And it was led by an emperor who promised peace and security, but who brought it about by force. Fully aware of how delicate the balance of peace could be, and how easily it could be upset, any sign of rebellion would be met with mighty military force. But in a backwater province that nobody really paid attention to, a group of people were waiting in hopeful expectation that someone would come along and set them free from imperial oppression. I'm talking, of course, about Star Wars. Isn't that the plot of every Star Wars movie? Big empire, a group of people who believe that there's a better way to do things. And, and the reason that I bring this up, we, we're, Star Wars is in the news right now, great new movies out. The reason I believe that movies like Star Wars have been so compelling for decades and really generations is because I believe that the stories that compel us, compel us precisely because they bring about echoes of the greatest story. The story that we're all gathered here today to talk about. It's a story that, much like Star Wars, began a long, long time ago in a place far away. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 2. We're going to talk through the Christmas story. Here's how Luke, Luke is a historian in the first century. He tells us that he investigated all of the claims carefully, that he interviewed the eyewitnesses, and he put together a report that we could believe so that we could be sure about the things that we claim to believe. Here's how Luke begins the story. He says, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Luke begins this story by telling us about a man named Caesar Augustus. And if you lived in the first century Roman Empire, you knew who Caesar Augustus was. Everybody knew Caesar's name. Here's a little bit about him. Caesar Augustus, he was born uh, on September 23rd, 63 B.C. He was the nephew of Julius Caesar. Uh, he died on August 19th, 14 AD. He became emperor of the Roman Empire in 27 BC after winning a bloody civil war. But about 12 years, 22 years uh, before that, uh, when his uncle Julius Caesar died, there was a star that went across the sky during the funeral games for Julius Caesar. And the people then believed that this star in the sky was representative of the fact that Julius Caesar had been elevated to the divine status of a god. Octavian, who would become Caesar Augustus, it was believed then that the successor of the previous emperor would, was the son of the emperor. And so he became known as Divifilius in Latin, which means son of God. Caesar Augustus modeled himself as the son of God, as the one who was going to bring about peace and security to the empire. He ushered in what was known as the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And, his, and he began to use terms, and terms began to be used, applied to him, that, that are going to sound very familiar to us today. In about the year 9 B.C., 
Nine years before uh, what we consider the birth of Christ, there was a calendar that was inscribed in the city of Priyin. And this is what it said. The, the inscription on this calendar says, It seemed good to the Greeks of Asia, in the opinion of the high priest Apollonius of Mephophilus Azantius, since providence, which has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our life, has set in most perfect order by giving us Augustus. These people in the city of Priene are recognizing, they, they believe that providence, the, the gods, have, have been interested in their lives. And so they sent the Divifilius, Augustus, Caesar Augustus. He goes on, he goes on to say, uh, whom she, whom providence has filled with virtue, that he might benefit humankind, sending him as a, what? Savior both for us and for our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things. And since he, Caesar, by his appearance, excelled even our anticipations, surpassing all previous benefactors and not even leaving to posterity any hope of surpassing what he has done. And since the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the what? Good tidings for the world that came... By reason of him, Asia resolved in Smyrna. And so what they do, this calendar basically says, we're going to rearrange the calendar. We're going to make the birthday of Augustus the beginning of our calendar. Because he is this divine being sent by providence who's going to bring about good news and establish peace as our Savior. This is how they viewed Caesar Augustus, the emperor of the Roman Empire. Pay attention to this language. This was written... Somewhere between five to ten years before the events we're going to talk about this morning. This is the cultural backdrop against which we read this famous Christmas story that perhaps we have become maybe a little too comfortable with and accustomed to. So we're going to go back to Luke chapter 2, verse 4. Here's how he continues. He says, so Joseph... We just got done talking about Caesar Augustus. Everybody knew who Caesar was... And then he says, so Joseph, which leads us to the question, well, well, who is Joseph? He's nobody. Nobody nobody in the Roman Empire knew who Joseph was. Everybody knew who Caesar Augustus was. And then Luke starts talking about this person that nobody really cared about. Nobody really knew this carpenter from this backwater province that nobody really cared about in the Roman Empire. So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem. Nazareth, Bethlehem, Judea. Nobody in the Roman Empire really cared about these places. It was a part of the empire, but it was like nobody really knew about that. It's like if we're, if we're talking about the president of the United States in Washington, D.C., everybody knows who that is and where that is. And it's like somebody there talking about the president and then mentioning, like, Ellettsville, right? Like, nobody knows where Ellettsville is, outside of, you know, this area of the country. That's, that's what Luke, he's going from Caesar and Rome to Joseph in Ellettsville. That's, a, you know, sort of what we would think about. Uh, it, it's in the middle of nowhere, as far as anybody there would have been concerned. Nobody knows who Joseph is. Nobody knows where Nazareth is or Bethlehem is. These are, these are not even blips on the radar, according to what's going on in the world at the time. Now, interesting note, to go from 
Nazareth to Bethlehem was about an 85-mile journey. They didn't have cars or trains or planes. This would have been a journey on foot, maybe with a donkey or an animal or two, perhaps. This is the journey they're taking for this census. Story goes on. Uh, From Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. So Joseph, this, this, this nobody carpenter that nobody who's anybody in the Roman Empire knows about, much less cares about, and he's going with his uh, you know, engaged wife, who, by the way, is already pregnant, right? Imagine how that's going to go. She's, uh, she's this teenager. She's found with child before they're actually married. And she says, oh, no, 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 don't, don't worry. It's from God. How would that go over today, right? <laughs> that's that likely excuse, right? You can't try that one again. Uh, so they're, they're making this 85-mile journey together. The story goes on. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. Now, can you imagine having a baby on a road trip? Can you imagine like going to visit your parents, and then you know, that's when you have your baby? Now, some of you have had babies. Some of you have been the spouse of somebody who's had babies. Can you imagine, like, taking a really long road trip and then the baby comes while you're away from everybody that you know and the familiarity of home and, and you're having this baby miles and miles away from where you were probably expecting to have this baby? Most of you probably know this. My wife is about eight months pregnant right now. And I, and with, with all of the comforts of modern technology and travel, I can't imagine her going into labor 85 miles away from here. Let alone, like, we have a car and we have access to, like, hospitals in every town. And, and the thought of her going into labor someplace away from home, like, stresses me out just thinking about it. Imagine this couple who's young and engaged, traveling, doesn't have a car, away from home, and she goes into labor and she has this baby miles and miles away from home in this town that nobody knows about. Luke goes on with the story. He says, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Right, so we look at the Christmas cards and all of the art, and we think that they're having this baby out in a stable somewhere. That's not exactly what happened. In first century culture, there were guest rooms, but then there was the lower room of the house where the animals would stay when it was cold. So it's not like they're out in a stable somewhere, but they don't have any privacy. They're not in their own room. And she's having this baby, and she, there's, there's no other place to put it. The place is so crowded that the only place that she can lay this baby is in the feeding trough of an animal. So the point that I want to get across here is as we tell this story that we've become so enamored with, this story that we've become so comfortable with, we we think about it, but what we don't understand is that in its culture, there was nothing respectable about this. Nothing about the birth of Christ was respectable or dignified according to any standards of the world. Right? We have this couple who's engaged, a, a woman who got pregnant outside of wedlock in a culture in which that was even more uh, 
looked down upon than it is now. They're 85 miles away from home. The only place to lay this baby is in the trough of a manger. It's, it's these two people that nobody knows anything about in this backwater province of the Roman Empire. Nobody cares about what's going on. Nothing about the birth of Jesus is respectable or dignified in any way. We gather here and we dress up for Christmas and we have all of these, you know, we, we put on our best and all that. But, but the first Christmas was nothing like that. It, there, was, there was no pomp or circumstance. There was no celebration uh, of the kind that we know now. People weren't dressed up. Nobody who's anybody knew what was going on. This, you know, imagine, I mean, it, it's, imagine like a, a teenage couple giving birth in a in a hotel parking lot, right? This is this is what this is what the beginning of the life of Jesus was like, and I think this is significant, right? And I'm, I'm going to tell you why. We're going to go on with the story. Luke continues in verse eight. He says, "And there were shepherds." So we have a change of scene. We have Mary, who's just given birth to this baby, laid this baby in a trough. Uh, And then we have a change of scene. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And we sort of, you know, we have, we think of shepherds and we sort of romanticize this occupation that, you know, these shepherds are like these noble people. But that's not how they were viewed back in in Jesus' day. Here's how one commentator puts it. He says, one should not romanticize the occupation of shepherds. In general, shepherds were dishonest and unclean according to the standards of the law. They represent the outcasts and sinners. Adding to the lack of respectability and the lack, the lack of anything dignified according to this whole story. There's, there's nothing romantic about what's happening in this story for anybody who's involved there. We, we only look at it that way through hindsight because we know what happens. Here's how the story continues. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were what? Terrified. Right? This, by the way, this is the most common reaction to angels in the Bible. Right? Angels show up, and people are terrified. Like the, uh, Something about them, whenever an angel shows up, people like get scared. So when, when people tell me that they've had angels visit them, I say, well, you know, did it terrify you? Because if not... Maybe not. Uh, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord should run about them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. Now I want you to pay really close attention to what the angel says next, and compare it with, with the inscription we read earlier. Do not be afraid. I bring you what? Good news. We could also translate that glad tidings, the exact same word that was used in the inscription earlier. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a what? Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. He's using the exact same language that we read that was used about Caesar. What I want to make very, very clear about this is that this is the language of treason. This is the language of sedition. It's like it's like if we were to pick somebody in this room and start honoring them as the president of the United States, saying, "No, no, no. This is really our true president." Right? If we started doing that, 
Some people in, in, in dark cars in black suits might show up. Right? We might, we might be brought under some investigation and some interrogation. This, that's, we, we, we look back on this and we think, oh, and we sing all these Christmas songs and then we dress up. This is the language of revolution. The angel is saying, I don't care what's going on over there in the big city of Rome, in the empire. There is something happening here. That's going to change the world. I know that, I know that you've been told that, that Caesar is Savior. That Caesar is going to usher in peace. That Caesar is going to bring about all of your dreams. That Caesar's the one who's going to save you and transform this world. It's not Caesar. It's not what everybody else is paying attention to. What's really going to change the world is what's happening right here. In this backwater province, in this small town, among these people that nobody knows about and nobody cares about. This little baby that nobody knows anything about is going, he's the true Savior. He's the true Lord. He's the true King. We can take Messiah, we can take Lord, we can translate those as King, as ruler. These are, these are terms, Savior and Lord, that Caesar applied to themselves and that the, the establishment applied to Caesar. And the angel saying, No, the true King of the world is this little baby who's laying in a feeding trough in an out-of-the-way town that nobody's paying any attention to. Here's how the New Testament scholar N.T. Wright describes it. He says, The point Luke is making is clear. The birth of this little boy is the beginning of a confrontation between the kingdom of God and all its apparent weakness, insignificance, and vulnerability and the kingdoms of the world. Several years ago, when the heir to the throne had a baby in 2013, when, when a future king was born, all of the press outlets were reporting on the birth of this new baby in the land of England. Every channel covered the birth of this baby boy. All of the important people were notified. This is how kings usually come into the world. And yet, the true king of the world came into the world without anybody knowing. Without anybody of any importance being made aware. It was shepherds. It was outcasts. It was sinners. It was, it was to these people that nobody knew about. And this, this lets us know a little bit about what God is like. Because if you remember what I told you last week, Christmas is about God with us. That Jesus is Emmanuel. He represents God's very presence among us. And He didn't come into the world with pomp, with circumstance, with, with the important people of the world paying attention, paying homage. He came into the world relatively unexpected. And His entire ministry characterized His concern for people just like that, for the downtrodden and the outcast, for those whom society didn't pay any attention to. And His message was one that was going to turn the entire world upside down. Here's how New Testament scholar and professor, our Church of God's very own Kimberly Majeski puts it. She says, The depiction of Jesus' birth is from the beginning a challenge to the rule of Rome. And the kingship of Caesar. The message is clear about this Jesus. From the first cries in the manger, there is a new king. And he has come to set us free.
This is what Christmas is all about. So maybe you're, maybe we're, we're talking about first century politics and you know and Caesar and, and Jesus as this new king, and you might be thinking, okay, so, so what? So what? What does it matter that Luke used the very same language of empire to describe Jesus? What does it matter that honoring Jesus as Lord would have been viewed as treason and sedition against the empire? It means that if Jesus really is the king of the world, then Christianity is far more than just a get-out-of-hell-free card. That as we celebrate the birth of Jesus, it's, it's, it's more than just our personal ticket to heaven when we die. Too much of Christianity has been about Jesus and your personal relationship with Jesus, and he saves you for heaven, and what happens in between is just sort of, sort of nice but optional. If this is true, if Jesus really is the true king of the world, then Christianity is, is so much more than just a ticket to heaven when we die. It means that Jesus is the true and rightful king, and as the true and rightful king, he demands our allegiance. He demands our allegiance. It means that we have to choose who we're going to serve. It means we have to choose where we're going to place our allegiance. And if we look at the message in the ministry of Jesus, we see that he takes the systems of the world and he flips them upside down time and time again. He says what, what the world says is important and great, that's not how things work in the economy of the kingdom of God. He redefines greatness as those who serve. He says that the poor and the hungry are the ones who are going to be sitting at the table in the kingdom of God. He takes everything that we think we know about respectability, everything we think we know about dignity, and he flips it upside down. He says the ones who are important, the ones who are great, are the ones who give their lives in self-sacrificial loving service to their neighbors and their enemies. And he invites us to be a part of that. He invites us to participate in and proclaim a new king, the true and rightful king of the world. Christmas is, is a reminder that for those of us who, who maybe think that we're invisible to the world, for those of us who don't have any status or respectability or dignity in the system of the world, Jesus, that Christmas says, God sees you. God sees you where you are in all of your apparent vulnerability. In all of your weakness, God sees you, and he knows you, and he loves you where you are. And in the kingdom of God, you are important. For those of us who, who maybe uh, are beneficiaries of the systems of the world, for those of us who maybe have some status and some importance, it means that we're going to need to rethink what we think is important. We're going to need to submit ourselves to the reign of a new king. We're going to need to give up maybe what we think is power and prestige and wealth in service to something else, knowing that as we do so, we're investing in the longest part of our lives. Christmas is about God looking down on a world in need and sending his son to set things right. For the poor and the outcasts and the vulnerable, this is good news. This means that, that they're seen and known and loved by God. For those who are in power, for those who represented the systems of the world, this didn't feel quite like good news. 
When King Herod heard about the birth of a new king, he didn't rejoice. He didn't throw a party in celebration. No, he sent out an envoy to kill all of the the young boys two years and under in the reign because he knew that if there was really a new king, that his power would be threatened. When the Roman governor of the province of Judea heard that there was a new king in town, he didn't rejoice. He nailed him to a cross. Because the king of the world, the true king of the world, challenges the existing power structures of the day. And so for those of us who are beneficiaries, it doesn't always necessarily feel like good news. Because what, what, what has given us power and comfort and prestige, Jesus comes and flips on its head. But if we look at it through the lens of the poor and the powerless and the oppressed, we realize that we get to participate in setting the world right, even though sometimes it feels like things are being turned upside down. So Christmas, as we celebrate with our decorations and our nice clothes and our feasts, is well and good. But we need to remember that the first Christmas was nothing like that. The first Christmas was humble. The first Christmas was messy. The first Christmas was vulnerable. When the king of the world came into the world, he didn't come into the world in grand celebration. He came into the world with a couple of teenage parents, probably. Was laid in a trough. Was met by sinners and outcasts. But this is the very same king who said that he came to give us life and life to the full. But in order to experience that, we have to give him our allegiance. We have to turn our lives over in service to him. If we want the true peace and the true joy that Christmas brings, we have to submit ourselves to the rule of a new king. But he's a king who loves us. A king who cares for us. A king who has our best interests at heart, even if we don't know what our best interests really are. So this Christmas season, I invite you, if you've been a follower of Jesus for a long time, to reignite your allegiance for him. To give yourself to him once again and say, I give my allegiance to you as king of the world and lord of my heart. If you've not been a follower of Jesus, I invite you to give your allegiance to the true king of the world, knowing that he loves you, that he wants the best for you, that as you follow him, it may not always be easy. It may not always be comfortable, but he has a plan for you that includes not just this life, but the life to come. And that through us, he wants to bring about his new rule where peace and justice and mercy and love will reign. Christmas is about God seeing a world in need and sending his son to set it right. And as we give our allegiance to this king, we get to be a part of that. So I'm going to have a word of prayer and then Mandy is going to come back up and she's going to close us out with a beautiful song. Lord, we thank you
that you saw a world in need. We thank you that you did something about it, that you sent your son to set it right. God, we recognize that the way that you work isn't necessarily in the systems and the ways that the world works. That when you sent the true and rightful kingdom to the world, you didn't do it with pomp and ceremony and circumstance, but you did it in a vulnerable, almost an embarrassing way. We thank you for this demonstration that, that you care not just for the power and the wealth, but for those who are lost, for those who feel invisible, for those who feel like they've been left behind by the ways of the world. Father, we ask you to help us in our commitments, in our allegiance, that you would just reignite in us a desire to follow our King, to participate in the kingdom of God. Father, may we as a church demonstrate your love for the world through our actions. Father, may this Christmas season remind us that you see us, that you love us, and that you have invited us to be a part of something far greater than ourselves. I thank you for this in Jesus' strong name. Amen.